This is the word of the Lord from Leviticus 16, 29 through 34. This is to be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you are to practice self-denial and do not work, both the native and the alien who resides among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. It is a permanent statute. The priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as a high priest in place of his father will make atonement. He will put on linen garments and holy garments and make atonement for the most high holy place. He will make atonement for the tent of meeting and the altar and will be made and, and will make atonement for the priests and all the people in, of the assembly. This is to be a permanent statute for you to make atonement for the Israelites once a year because of all their sins. And all this was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Amen. Good job, Haven. It's your first time doing the scripture reading. That's great. I always love seeing our, our students, our youth involved. And uh, so jumping ahead to the end, but we have a back to school students bash coming up in a few weeks. So make sure you get that on your calendars. I'll tell you the date later. But uh, if you are new, you should know that one of the things we just absolutely love as a church is we love to walk through books of the Bible. And uh, we are currently walking through the often neglected and often maligned book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. It's part of the Torah, the first five books that were written by Moses. And as we've journeyed through the book of Leviticus, we've gone through some strange places and some treacherous waters. But today, we actually find ourselves in the chapter that most scholars recognize is not only the peak or the climax or the pinnacle of the book of Leviticus, but it's actually the pinnacle and the climax of the entire Torah. I said this during the call to worship, but I think only like 30% of you were actually in the room then. So I'll just repeat it here real quick, that the book uh, the, 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 the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus is the center book of the Torah. And in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16, this day of atonement is the central chapter, the central material in the book of Leviticus. And if you know anything about the Hebrew writings, Hebrew scriptures, they love to do things in this symmetrical pattern. It's called a chiasm. So you, you know, kind of like A, B, C, B, A. Well, this is the dead center. This is it. This is the point of emphasis. This is the whole thing. This is the whole reason why the book of Leviticus exists. It's this central day called the Day of Atonement. In Jewish uh, parlance to this day, they, they call it Yom Kippur or just the day. It's such a big deal. You don't even need to qualify it with anything else. It's just the day. And so I want to share with you some things that, that uh, I think are really important for us to hear. And so I would just invite you to pray with me and pray for me as we turn our hearts to the teaching of God's word. Lord, we thank you that you are the kind of God that is not content with us being far off, separated, and distant but that you are always and have always uh, done everything necessary to make a way for your people to be with you. And so, Lord, even right now, would you make us aware that you are here with us? Even as we sang a moment ago, that we'd be more aware of your presence in our lives. Lord, would you help me to teach that which is in line with the truth of your word and, and guard my speech and, and guide my, my words. <clears throat> and Lord, for each one of us, I pray that we would have a softer 
more receptive heart, a heart that's drawn closer to you because of what Jesus has done for us in the ultimate day of atonement. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So my wife and I, we have four daughters, and we've also over the years done foster care. So we've had any number of a dozen plus kids live with us for lengths of time. And it's always interesting to think about which kids will come for what. So even if you're not a parent, you've been around kids, or maybe you've got nieces and nephews, or you've babysat or something like that, and you hear that, that, that call from the other room, right? Mom! And you're like, oh no, what, what do they want now? Maybe it's, maybe it's to express their undying love and devotion and affection for you. Why are you being so skeptical? It's, it's usually not, but it's like, you know, help me with my problems. Or, or is there, there are some kids who will come, you know, in our family, one of the kids will come because she just loves affection. She always wants to get a hug or, or just be affectionate. Or uh, one kid might come because of every just injury or owie. Or a kid might come because of their fears. I'm feeling scared. I, I want mom and dad. Or uh, one kid will just show up Anytime there's any sort of sugar that just happens to be like, I'll, I'll swing through the store, you know, I'll go to the hardware store or something to get a candy bar. And as I walk through the door, she'll just materialize like a genie out of a bottle. Like, is there candy here? It's like, I could sense it. It's like, what is wrong with you? But, but here's the thing. That's, that's all part of parenting. And, and if you've ever taken care of a kid or watched a kid, you know that sometimes they'll come. But the other thing that you notice sometimes is what the kids won't come for especially with those kids that we've had with foster care, oftentimes there's a sense of fear. I don't want to come near to you. I don't want to come bother you. I don't want to make you upset. I don't want to frustrate you. But even with our own kids, you know, there's, there's one kid who will always bring their problems. Or I need help with homework. And there's another kid who just will not ever ask for help with homework. Or uh, there, there's just different reasons why not only would one of the kids come near, but might stay away and stay distant. Now, I had one of my seminary professors one time said that he would summarize the story of the entire Bible with three words, life with God. Life with God. We were created to be near to God. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? And at the very, that's right at the very first pages of the Bible, at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, behold, the, the dwelling place of God is with ma- mankind. So the very first page, the very last page of the Bible is all humanity and God living together, dwelling together. And the whole storyline in between is, is humanity choosing sin, rebellion, other things that cause distance between us and God, and God refusing to let that be the relationship with his people. And in fact, we see it clearly on display right here in the book of Leviticus. In a few weeks, we'll be in Leviticus chapter 26, but just jumping ahead there in verse 11, there's such a beautiful summary statement of what the point of this tabernacle and the priests and the sacrifices, what's the point of all of it? Leviticus 26, God says, I will place my residence among you and I will not reject you. I will walk among you. Does that remind anybody of Genesis, right? The early chapters of Genesis. I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. What's the deal with all the priests and the sacrifices and all that kind of stuff? It's because God loves his people. I even go so far as to say God likes his people. God enjoys his creation. He delights in the people that he made, those who bear his image and likeness. And God wants us to draw near to him. 
And, 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 and in all of the sacrifices and in all of the different rituals and things that we've read in Leviticus, the whole point is to bring the people close. Now, when we've seen here in Leviticus, we've seen all these different sacrifices. We've seen there are sacrifices for sins, but we also have seen all this stuff about ritual impurity that symbolizes death. And, and so what, what's the, the kind of what's running in the background here is all of these instructions have been given, all of these sacrifices have been made, but it's almost like when God welcomes his people to come near, it's almost like we've got uh, the muddy shoes of sin on still, Right? Now, all the sacrifices and all those things show us that God wants us to come near, but even when we do draw near, we still come with sin, we still come with the yuck of just the broken and and, and world of death. Quick show of hands, how many of you just decided before you got got up to come to church this morning, how many of you just got perfect real quick? Anybody? (laughs) Nobody? Oh, good, okay. So how many of you, okay, show of hands, how many of you come here, you gather here for worship, like, you know what, I still have a lot of sin that I still need the Lord's help with? Anybody on it? Okay, good. The same is true for the people of Israel. As they come to worship the Lord, they come bringing their their yuck. And so once a year, there's this big, giant, high holy day, a day of complete fasting and self-denial, where the Lord, in essence, sets off like a fumigation bomb to get rid of all the sins and all the yuck that the people have brought for all of these weeks and months and years of sacrifices. Jay Sklar summarizes it this way. He says, by this point in Leviticus, it is clear that the Israelites' sins and impurities defiled not only themselves, but also the Lord's sanctuary. This created a serious problem because defiling a king's home was viewed as a treasonous act to be met with swift justice. Now, ideally, the Israelites would have addressed such defilement by the sacrifices and the rituals of Leviticus 4 through 5 and also 11 through 15. But in reality, some would have been unaware of their sin or impurity. Anyone here ever like, been unaware of your sin? Anyone here ever had your sins pointed out by someone else? By your spouse? By your kids? By a stranger? Sometimes we're unaware of it, while others, they may have been aware, but just defiantly refused to address it. So as a result, the Lord's sanctuary remained defiled, and his justice could pose an imminent threat. But the Lord, however, is Israel's redeeming king, who always desired to continue in covenant fellowship with his people. It's a fancy way of saying the Lord wants to be close to his people. He therefore provided this day, the day of atonement, to make full atonement for their sin and impurity, thus removing the threat of his judgment and assuring the Israelites that they could continue in covenant fellowship with him. Here it is. At the heart of Leviticus, Roy Gain, another scholar, puts it this way. He says, right here, at the heart of Leviticus, the central book of the Pentateuch are a few small steps for a man, the high priest, but a giant leap for humanity toward the heart of God. And again, just in case you've not been paying attention, what is that heart of God? What is it that God desires? God desires that we would draw near to him. That's what God wants. He wants us and him to be in close fellowship together. Now, the book of Leviticus in chapter 16, this day of atonement, 
is going to address five very specific problems. They're problems that were relevant to the people of Israel in Leviticus. They're also still relevant to us today. Here are the five problems. They are the problem of distance, the problem of disobedience, the problem of death, the problem of demonic uh, interference, and also the problem of direction. I wanted to say leadership for point number five, but as you'll see, I was on a roll and I stuck with D. So I will make no apologies and excuses I was feeling very, very Baptist this week as I put this together, okay? Five points that all start with the letter D. Let's start with the problem of distance, the problem of being distant from God. No, Leviticus 16 begins with this. In verse one, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. Now, pause, pause. Leviticus 16, verse one is picking back up from Leviticus chapter 10. We have had a multi-chapter interruption in the narrative. You may remember that the narrative was God saved his people, they built the tabernacle, he taught them about the priests, he taught them about the sacrifices, they prayed over, they laid hands on the priests, they had the first worship service... Hooray, I made you guys cheer. You guys remember that, who, those of you who are here? It's like, yeah, we had the first worship service. Everything is great. And then two knuckleheads named Nadab and Abihu decided to go into the presence of the Lord. You know, we don't get all the details of the specifics. We, we, it seems to indicate that they were drunk and just came up with their own liturgy and worship service and just did what they wanted to do. Now, we know that God, all throughout the the Bible, but particularly in the book of Leviticus, he says, I am holy, I am other. I am the source of life. I I am all glory. And you can't just approach me any old way that you want because you are mortal, you are fallen. And for a mortal, fallen, sinful creature to enter into the presence of pure holiness, we can't handle it. So Nadab and Abihu did this. They were struck dead by the Lord. So now there's a really big problem. Because corpses are defiling. Remember, you can't touch a corpse. That's one of those sources of ritual impurity. Guess what's in the middle of the tabernacle now? Two corpses. This is big, bad problem, badness. It's the technical term for it, okay? Really bad, really, really bad. So the Lord's speaking to Moses, hey, remember this really bad thing? We're not gonna do it that way again. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Now, I want you to focus in on that phrase mercy seat. In the Hebrew, it's a strange word. We don't have a one-to-one word. So mercy seat is one way that Bible translators try to capture the meaning of what's going on. it, It refers to the lid of the ark of the covenant, the ark, that box that they put the Ten Commandments into, it's, it's in the holiest of holy places. You don't get to go in there. You don't get to see it. And in Exodus, there were these instructions given that you're going to take this lid and you're going to put golden cherubim, these golden supernatural angel beings, you're going to fashion them and put them on there and it will be like God's throne. See, the thing about God is God dwells in unapproachable light. 
God is high and exalted. God is lifted up. In fact, the psalmist says, the Lord reigns, the, let the people tremble. It says he is enthroned between the cherubim, not like these gold ones on the lid, like the actual ones in heaven. And if you think about that, you ought to let the earth quake, right? That was for dramatic effect. You tracking with me here? Like God is impressive. God is powerful. God created the heavens and the earth and all that we can see. Maybe you've had an experience where you're, you're watching the waves come crashing in on the ocean or you climb to the top of a mountain and you just are overwhelmed. God, how huge you are, how powerful you are, how majestic you are. I remember a couple of years ago, our family took a trip to the Grand Canyon and I, I, I had been to the Grand Canyon as a kid. I thought I knew the drill. And as we got out of the rented minivan and we walked up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, it, I, like, it took my breath away. It's like, this is very grand. It's huge. It's majestic. I think it's Matt Chandler, a preacher, who goes, nobody ever walks up to the Grand Canyon and goes, wow, I am impressive. Like, you don't do that. You you shrink back and say, God, you're incredible. You're amazing. And so the idea here is if God is enthroned between the cherubim, but then he instructs the people to make this lid for the ark, and he's going to put golden cherubim here, and God says, you know what? I'm going to lower myself. I'm going to condescend to your level. There will be a throne on earth where I myself will dwell. And one time a year, the high priest gets to go in behind that curtain and approach the mercy seat, the throne of God. Leviticus 16.11 says, when Aaron presents the bull for his sin offering and makes atonement for himself and his household, he will slaughter the bull for a sin offering. Then he's to take a pan full of blazing coals from the altar and before the Lord, then he's going to take two big handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense, and he brings it all inside the curtain. He's going to enter in with, with fear and trembling. This is where Nadab and Abihu died. But if he brings the coals and he brings the incense, he's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of incense covers that mercy seat cherubim lid that's over the testimony or else he will die. It's like a, it's like a buffer. It's like this cloud of smoke is a buffer between the human and the divine realms. He's to take some of the bull's blood and, and he's going to sprinkle it with his finger against the east side of the mercy seat. And then he'll sprinkle some of the blood with his finger before the mercy seat seven times. And then when he slaughters the male goat for the people's sin offerings, we'll come back to the goats in a minute here, he's to take that blood inside the curtain and he'll do the same with its blood as he did with the bull's blood. He is to sprinkle it against the mercy seat and in front of it. Now, friends, these are strange rituals to our ears. We don't do that kind of stuff on a Sunday morning. I don't sprinkle goat's blood on the east side of the, the, the keyboard or whatever. It's like, we don't do this ritual, but the theological symbolism, the messaging is crystal clear. No longer is the problem of God's distance something that can keep us away. We don't have to climb the highest mountain. We don't have to swim to the deepest part of the ocean. Through a representative priest, God's people are drawn right near, right next to him. So the problem of distance is no more. Second problem, the problem of disobedience Skip down to verse 16. He, the priest, will make atonement for the most holy place in this way for all their sins because of the Israelites' impurities. That's that non-sinful ritual impurity, but also their rebellious acts. When he has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he is to present the live male goat. Again, the goats. We can explain these goats here a little bit more. 
This is the one that doesn't get sacrificed. It's the live male goat. Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. He'll confess over it all of the Israelites' iniquities, rebellious acts, and sins. He's going to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness. Now, again, more on the goat in a minute here. But look at those three words, iniquities, rebellious acts, and sins. Start with the third one, sins. In the Hebrew, this is the most generic term for wrongdoing. And some of you may have heard this, that it actually comes from an archery term. The idea is you've, you've aimed your arrow, but you've shot and you've missed the mark. The idea being you, you tried your best, but you still fell short. Has anyone ever felt that way? Like, I tried my best, but I just still, I still messed up. I still fell short. It's like, I, I want, you know, Paul, like, I want to do good, but I just can't seem to do it. Or I, I want to say no to sin, but I, I just couldn't. The second word I want you to look at is the word iniquities. Now, this is one of those words that in English we just don't use, iniquities. You've never been, you know, checking out at, at Whole Foods, like, how's your day going? I'm like, oh, I'm just dealing with a lot of iniquities right now. And they're like, okay, does that, do you need a bag then? It's eight cents if you want a bag. Like, yeah, put all the iniquities in there, it's fine. Like, it's just one of those kind of strange words. In the Hebrew, it's related to the word for bent or crooked, The idea here in this word is like, something in me is just messed up. Something in me is kind of warped and twisted. Be honest, have you ever felt that way? Something in me is just like messed up. Like I I try to do good and I can't, and then I find myself like having ugly thoughts or impure thoughts or whatever. Like something in me is just kind of, ugh, it's just kind of messed up. The third phrase is rebellious acts. Some of your translations might have transgressions transgressions or rebellious act. Here, very simply, it's there's a line. You know there's a line. You know you shouldn't cross the line. You chose to cross the line. This is willful disobedience. So here we've got every possible type. There's the, man, I was trying and I just fell short. There's the, man, there's something messed up that just kind of comes out of me. Or the, yeah, I knew better and I still stink and did it. And here God says, though that should separate you from me, I am going to make a way through the blood of the sacrifice for you to be cleansed and forgiven for all your wrongdoing. And though I should offer my justice, instead I will offer my embrace. Come near to me. You guys tracking with me? See the grace of God on display here? I know it's weird. I know it's like goats and hands on goats and, and all that kind of stuff, but it's, 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 again, the message of what it's communicating is that God is not willing to let even your sin separate you from him. Number three, the problem of death. The problem of death. When he slaughters, verse 15, when he, the priest, slaughters the male goat for the people's sin offering and brings its blood inside the curtain, he will do the same with its blood as he did with the bull's blood. He is to sprinkle it against the mercy seat and in front of it, and he will make atonement for the... Oh, what does it say? He will make atonement for the most holy place in this way. It's interesting. We, we often use the language of uh, he will make atonement for the people, but here he's actually making atonement for the most holy place. If you keep reading, he'll do the same for the tent of meeting that remains among them because it's surrounded by their impurities. He is to sprinkle, verse 19, he's to sprinkle some of the blood on the altar with his finger seven times to cleanse it and set the altar apart from the Israelites' impurities. When he has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, it's interesting. Again, does, does the blood of the sacrifice make atonement for us, the people of God? 
Yes. But why do all these objects need to be atoned for? Because we are living in a land of death. All of these impurities, if you can go back and listen to the last four or five sermons that we've talked about in Leviticus, the the food laws, the discharges, touching a corpse, skin diseases that look like a corpse, all of this is the vestiges of death. And death would be something that would separate us from the God who is life himself. But here again, God says, through the day of atonement, I'm not even going to let death separate you from me. Come near. Be with me. Number four, the problem of the demonic. Now, again, the word demonic, depending on your background, maybe that sounds scary to you or maybe that sounds a little woo-woo or whatever. We as people who follow Jesus believe in a spiritual realm. We believe there is a God. We believe that there are uh, angelic spiritual beings that follow the one true God and are loyal and committed to him. We also believe that there are spiritual beings who have rebelled against the one true God and have set themselves in opposition to the one true God. And in this text, in Leviticus 16, there is, I am convinced, uh, a portrait of a spiritual being who is on the receiving end of the judgment of the Lord. Jesus says that there's an enemy. He says there's a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so we would be wise to be aware that we have a spiritual enemy that wants to keep us from God wants to keep us distant from God. So here, Leviticus 16, this is an interesting thing. So Aaron will present, there's a bull, first offering is a bull. He makes atonement for himself and his household. But next, he's going to take two goats and he's going to place them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Real quick side note. When I was a little kid, my, my family, my parents owned goats. We lived in the woods of Alaska and we had a goat pen. And I very distinctly remember coming home from church on a Sunday afternoon and the goats had escaped from the goat pen. They had gone into the house. They had left droppings everywhere and they ate all of my mom's piano sheet music. (laughs) And after that, we no longer had goats. They were just gone. They disappeared. They were scapegoated off into the wilderness somewhere. (laughs) Anyways, that's what's going in my mind as I read this portion. So, So the priest has got two goats. And he's going to place them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he's going to cast lots. This is kind of like flipping a coin or, or, or throwing dice just to see, Lord, in your sovereignty, which goat do you want? So one goat is going to be for the Lord, and the other is for Azazel. Azazel. Uh, if you look at this in some of your translations, in the CSB translation, it just says a uninhabitable place. Others of your translations, like the ESV, are going to actually transliterate this word Azazel. The problem with this word Azazel is it's only found here in Leviticus 16, four times in three verses. Nowhere else in the entire Bible. So scholars are like, well, how best should we translate it? Should it be, you know, a, a wilderness place? You're going to send the goat for the wilderness? Is it, is it a location? Is it just kind of an abstract noun? The tradition that has the strongest evidence behind it is that Azazel is the name of some rival deity, some false god, a demon that is associated with goats that lives out in the wilderness and represents the forces of death. Those, those, those traditions run all the way through uh, the intertestamental period and a lot of literature there. Leviticus 17, when we get there next week, talks about goat demons and not sacrificing things to goat demons. It's interesting that this goat that is sent here, verse 10, says the goat chosen by Lot for Azazel is to be presented alive. This goat is not sacrificed to any god. This is a living goat. And it says here, 
that this goat is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with it by sending it off into the wilderness for Azazel. So somehow this goat is going to be sent away. Have you guys ever heard the, the term scapegoat? Not escape goat. That's a different thing. Scapegoat. It's actually not even a thing. Stop saying it. Scapegoat. <laughs> scapegoat comes from this chapter. Verse 20. When he, the priest, has finished making atonement with the blood of the bull and the other goat and all that stuff, he takes the live male goat. Now, Aaron's going to do something that nowhere else has he done. He's actually going to take both hands and lay it on the head of the goat. Not just one, like on the other sacrifices, both hands. And he is going to confess over it all of the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts, all their sins. Those three words we looked at. He's going to put all that rubbish, all that garbage, all that sin, he's going to put it, symbolically speaking, on the goat's head and then send it away into the wilderness by a guy who got chosen for the task. Poor dude. I got to carry the garbage truck goat out into the wilderness where maybe a, a scary goat demon God thing is waiting for it. The goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land and the man will release it there. And the one who sent the goat away, well, that poor dude, he's got to come back, he's got to wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and boom, he's ready to re-enter the camp. No big deal. Now, friends, I really want you to understand something here. I see, and I'm convinced, that this section is an act of spiritual warfare where the Lord defends his people against the forces of evil that would want to keep them from him. And the reason why I see it as an act of spiritual warfare is that remember what the goat was carrying. This is a living goat that is taking all of the yuck, all of the refuse, all of the sin, and dumping it on the front porch of this rival deity. Roy Gain, again, who I quoted earlier, he says it this way. I think he words it hilariously. The Lord directed the Israelites to transport their sins on a goat to Azazel, who ended up with this noxious load. This would be like sending someone a truck full of chemical waste or dumping a load of reeking maggot-infested chicken manure all over his front lawn. Not a friendly gesture. Here, Azazel, get a load of this. If you want to dig in more on this, I've attached a PDF on the church's website, the whole chapter from which this comes about understanding the reasons why this is an act of spiritual warfare. The point I'm trying to make here is there are spiritual forces that would want to keep you from coming close and drawing near to God. And here God says, no, we're going to push them back. And in fact, we're going to send them a present that they won't ever forget. Last problem, the problem of direction, or as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's leadership. Okay, maybe my sins are forgiven. Maybe death is defeated. Maybe the demonic forces are pushed back. Maybe God's not so far away. He's come close. How do I know how to worship him? How do I know how to draw near? I need a leader. I need someone who will direct me, someone who will guide me, who will show me how it's done. So here's the instructions to the priests. Aaron, the high priest, is to enter the most holy place in this way. He's to take a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now he's to wear, this is interesting, guys. This is super interesting. He's to wear a holy linen tunic and to tie a, a, a linen undergarment to be on his body and tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must, must bathe his body in water before he wears them. Real quick pause. If you remember back in the book of Exodus or early in Leviticus, the priest, when he goes to do his job, he wears very fancy clothes. 
a gold breastplate, a gold uh, like crown in the turban, fancy stones all over him, mixed fabrics. It's very ornate. It's very kingly. He's like a representative of the king. But here on the Day of Atonement, he takes off all of that kingly garb and he puts on humble linen garments for the work of atonement. It's like when you're going to go in the presence of the real king, you better not dress too, uh, you know, too fancy. So he's to take from the Israelite community the two male goats for the sin offering and one ram for the burnt offering and Aaron will present the bull for the sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household because, you know, Aaron himself, he's not perfect. He's not a perfect high priest. But he goes into that, he goes into that holy of holies. He does all the different stuff we've been reading about this whole time. But then... If you jump ahead down to verse 23, then Aaron is to go back and enter the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments he wore when he entered the most holy place and leave them there. He's done with that. When he's done, he takes off linen garments. He's, the work of atonement is complete. He will bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes. Then he's got to go back out in front of the people and lead them in worship. He goes back out in front of the people and sacrifices burnt offering and the people's burnt offering and he will make atonement for himself and for the people. This is great news. Now there's a leader in place who can lead the people in worship of God. So these five problems, reasons why they maybe couldn't come near. Oh, God is too high and lofty. He's come near. He's made the mercy seat. Well, there's, there's so much death everywhere. We can't come near. He has washed it away with the purification offering. Well, I'm too sinful and I've even been rebellious. God says, I will forgive you through the blood of the sacrifice. Well, there's evil forces out there that are trying to stop me from coming to you. And God says, we're going to send him a goat with a bunch of garbage in it to drive him away. And you're like, well, I don't know who's going to lead me. God's like, I've given you Aaron and the priesthood. Will you just come near? That's what this whole thing is about. Come on, son. Come on, daughter. Come close to me. Now, all of this is taken care of. There's just one problem. There's just one problem. Sin kept happening. The people kept sinning. I mean, read the Old Testament. People sinned. Kind of a lot. Well, actually, because of their sin, second, there are actually two problems, uh, seemed like the forces of evil were gaining ground. In fact, some of that sin was, in fact, worshiping false gods, demons. Which actually leads to the third problem is that people kept dying. So actually, the people kept dying and death seemed to reign. And, and in fact, actually, um, the priests themselves kept dying. So the priests, the, the directors, the leaders, uh, and, and actually, they gave place to sin too. And they gave place to corruption. And they, they would take bribes. And they led the worship of God's people in all sorts of wrong ways. And so eventually, God said, I will depart from you and I will remove my presence from you. And he sent the people away into exile. So then all of a sudden, there was a great distance again. I guess actually, I, I was incorrect. All five problems persisted because of the ongoing effects of sin until the day that God said, the time is now for the ultimate day of atonement. All those things that Leviticus 16 was pointing forward to, all of those rituals, all of those symbols, they were a mere signpost pointing forward to the day of atonement. The day when God himself would show up in human form to be the sacrifice, to be the scapegoat, to be the priest, to be 
the tabernacle, to be all of it. Friends, you've heard me say it, but I'm, I'm so serious. You cannot understand the work of Jesus without understanding Leviticus. Hebrews chapter 10, there's a preacher who's preaching a sermon. We don't know who this author is, but in Hebrews chapter 10, he's kind of reaching this climax and he's talking about all the the problems with the Levitical priesthood. It's not that the Levitical priesthood was bad, but it's that it was a temporary measure. It It was something that was put in place to point to something greater. It was something good, but we need something perfect. The author of Hebrews goes, look, there's priests day after day. They keep ministering. They keep offering the same sacrifices time and time again, which at the end of the day, they can't really take away sins. But this man, who's he talking about, church? It's not a trick question. Jesus, this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. And he is now waiting until his enemies, the forces of evil, the forces of darkness, all of those demonic hordes that set themselves against God, he's going to use them as a footstool. He's going to conquer them and he's going to put his feet up on them like an ottoman and say, you stay there. For by one offering, get this, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also tells us about this when he quotes from the Old Testament. This is the covenant I'll make with them. I'll put my laws on their hearts. I'll write them on their minds. And I will never again, never again, will I call to mind or remember their sins and their rebellion, their lawless acts. Oh, guess what? The problem of disobedience is dealt with once and for all by the blood of Jesus. Now, if there's an offer, there's forgiveness for then, you don't need any more offerings for sin. If you're forgiven of your lawless acts, you are good to go. Therefore, brothers and sisters, what ought you to do? Uh, we, we, we ought to have boldness to just go straight into the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus since he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is his flesh. We have great, uh, a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near. Oh, the thing that the priests only got to do one time per year, only with the greatest of of caution, only with all of this ritual and ceremony. You mean Jesus has fulfilled that? And we're now invited to just go straight up to God? The problem of distance is dealt with once and for all? Sign me up for that. Wait, I I get the Holy Spirit who is God living within me? Sign me up for that. God is not far off and distant. He's as close as your own breath because the Holy Spirit has taken residence in your body. So we get, to, we get to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Friends, listen to me. Jesus removes the distance. Jesus gets rid of the distance. There is now no more distance because God has come not in a tent. God has come in the flesh in the person and the work of Jesus. And after he completed the day of atonement work, he sent his Holy Spirit that anyone who trusts in Jesus would have God himself living within your mortal bodies. That's what the Bible claims. So God is is not far off. God is near. And Jesus forgives our disobedience as Jesus was nailed to the cross, as he was the atoning sacrifice, bleeding for our sins and our transgressions. What did Jesus cry out? Father, forgive them that he is full of mercy. He is full of grace. Through his death, he will forgive not only your accidental sins, but even the on-purpose ones. They're all dealt with because of what he did. 
And Jesus defeats the forces of darkness. Jesus defeats the demonic. It says that he has, he has taken on every principality and every power, and he's put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. That the cross looked like this great moment of defeat, but in fact, through his death, Jesus was knocking the teeth out of Azazel's face. And now the enemy has no more claim over you. The accuser has no more claim over you. And Jesus is going to have his enemies be an ottoman for him. And no force of darkness, no spiritual demonic force can keep you away from God. And not even death. Jesus conquers and defeats death. Because guess what, friends? He did not stay dead. When he died, he descended into the realm of the dead where he preached salvation to the spirits who were in prison and he snatched the keys away from death and hell and he has set us free once and for all from death. And even if in this life we die, one day he's gonna return and we will all rise and live with him in perfect fellowship and perfect resurrection life for all of eternity. And by the way now, Jesus is the one who provides direction for us. He is the one who leads us. He is the one who shepherds us. He is the one who who teaches us how to live a life that is honoring to God. Because when Jesus left heaven, he took off his robes of righteousness. He took off his kingly garb and he put on simple linen garments. He took on frail humanity to teach, to live, to love, to serve. And when he went into that most sacred, most holy place. He did the work of atonement. He died. He was sacrificed. But I love how the gospel of Luke says that when Peter went running to the tomb on that third day, he looked into the tomb and he he looked and there was nothing there but the linen garments that they'd wrapped Jesus' body in. Jesus did the work of atonement and then he took off those linen garments. He put back on his resurrection power, his divinity, and now he is seated at the right hand of God where he intercedes for us, he teaches us, he shepherds us, he cares for us, and he leads us. Jesus is the entire day of atonement all wrapped up into one. You guys tracking with me on this? Boy, Leviticus is relevant. So let me ask you this question. I'm gonna close with a question. What keeps you from drawing near to God? Let's get personal for a moment here. For any of you who are here today who have not yet trusted in Jesus, what is keeping you from surrendering your life to him, receiving his forgiveness, receiving his leadership, receiving his care, receiving his promise of eternal life? What what is stopping you? There might be any number of things. Let me just give you one that I often hear as a pastor, I often hear, well, I can't come to God until I clean up a few things. Um, with all the love in the world, that's actually even dumber than saying, I can't go to the gym until I get in shape first, okay? The whole point of going to the gym is because you're not in shape. Go to the gym, go get in shape. A million times more, you can't clean yourself up, you can't do the work that's needed. You go to Jesus, the high priest, the sacrifice, the scapegoat that was sent outside. He's all of it. He's every single thing you could possibly need. And you see his heart on display in Leviticus. You see it on, in the Gospels. You see the heart of God on display. It says, will you come here? Get over here. Let me clean you up. Let me wash you. Let me forgive you. 
don't push back. Don't, don't shrink back. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, I know any, any one of us who, who do know Jesus would love to pray with you and just share with you his grace, his mercy that he has for you, that he wants to wash you, cleanse you, purify you. For those of you who, by God's grace, are Christians, can you relate with this statement that, yes, even as a follower of Jesus, sometimes I shrink back from God? Anybody here with me on that? What is it that's keeping you from God? What is it that keeps you from drawing near to God? Oh, it's just busyness. Man, the, the, the second person of the Trinity took on human form and lived and died and rose again. And Man, I don't think we should let busyness keep us from God. Oh, I know we're all busy, but my goodness, we're talking about something that changed the course of the universe. Well, I just, I don't know. I'm not very smart. I don't understand all this stuff. Oh man, that, no worries. Jesus says, I love it when people come to me like a little kid. You don't have to have a PhD in you know, ancient Semitic languages or something. Just, God, you love me? Here I am. Well, I'm a very intellectual person. I like to think, maybe, you're, maybe you're too smart. I like to think about things and you don't, you don't notice that God's nearby. You never shut your brain off and just say like, God, thank you for loving me. Maybe some of you are fearful. I don't know. Would God really accept me? Would God really love me? I'm too sinful. I'm too fearful. I'm too broken. I've been hurt too bad. The stuff I've gone through in my life just hurts too bad. God wants you to come and receive his comfort. God wants you to draw near to him. God has made every arrangement. He has removed every obstacle. You are invited to come near to God. We draw near to God when we gather together like this and when we sing. We draw near to God when we open the scriptures and we read the words that he inspired to be written. In a minute, we're going to draw near to God through bread that is broken and a cup that has been filled representing the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. You draw near to God when you set aside quiet time and just go walk in nature and just be still and listen to his voice. There's, there's so many ways to draw near to God. Will you draw near to God? Will you not shrink back just like a little kid might shrink back from their parents. Will you let him embrace you? And in just a moment here, as we celebrate the Lord's table, I pray that you would see that as just a profound way to experience the grace of God, even here today. Let's take a minute and pray. Lord, would you help us Whatever the reason, whatever the excuse, whatever the problem we think we're facing that keeps us from drawing near to you, would you help us to see that it's, it's just been obliterated by the day of atonement, by the ultimate work that, Lord Jesus, you have done for us? Lord, we have no reason not to draw near to you other than our own short-sightedness or our own folly or our own fear. So, Lord, I pray right now you administer your grace to every heart that's here. The Lord, we would not give place to that fear, but we would recognize we are your children. We're your sons and your daughters. We've been brought near through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Help us to experience that and feel that even now as we eat and we drink and we pray together. In Jesus' name, amen.